Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. For more information and to donate online, go to 3cr.org.au. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. I got the red-eyed unemployed workers desperation Why does a wealthy country like Australia allow its unemployed workers to struggle in poverty without trying to create jobs? You may well ask. Unemployed Workers Fight Back is the Australian Unemployed Workers Union program, part of the sewer program on every second Friday of the month, 5.30pm on 3CR Community Radio. Our social security system is being defunded, privatised and dismantled and the poor and vulnerable are being criminalised and trampled upon. The Australian Unemployed Workers Union is focused on helping unemployed and underemployed workers deal effectively with the job agencies, empowering them to fight back for their rights. Remember, unemployed workers fight back every second Friday of the month at 5.30pm on 3CR Community Radio. Good afternoon, you are with Valerie Farfalla on the Australian Unemployed Workers Union program, Unemployed Workers Fight Back, a monthly program at 5.30 on the second Friday of each month. My program's on 3CR Community Radio, 8.55am, digital podcast and streaming live from 3cr.org.au and available online later today. We've missed a couple of programs this year due to International Women's Day and our recent Radiothon program in this time slot, however... We are really firing up today in the first program since the federal election. Today I'm talking with senior researcher with the Australia Institute, Matt Grudnoff. He's a senior economist there. About the failure of the LNP to provide evidence of the need for the third tranche of tax cuts, as well as the so-called economic reforms demanded by Australian business lobby groups which meet the needs of wealthier Australians. That will lead into a discussion about the failure of the ALP to support an increase in Newstart and other social security entitlements for the most disadvantaged, hard-working, unemployed workers in Australia. Here I'll be chatting with AUWU National Coordinator Alex North about the union's upcoming campaigns and events to convince the government, which is not budging from its neoliberal focus, have a go to get a go, mentality. My third guest today is a TAFE teacher, Lane, who will talk about several issues that affect tertiary teachers and students in the vocational sector. The recent influx of students uh, responding to the Victorian government's offer of free TAFE courses with reduced teacher numbers and the financial stresses on tertiary students. So we'll have a a good talk about that. Um, We also want to announce that... um, the Australian Unemployed Workers Union is going to be holding a Friday rush hour protest at the steps or opposite at St Paul's Cathedral or at the steps of Flinders Street. Tonight it's going to be roughly about 7 o'clock. We'd love you to join us, probably outside St Paul's Cathedral, but it depends whether it's raining or not, or Flinders Street Station. Next week we'll be going from 5 to 6.30. Um, we hope you'll join us because we... We really need to protest against New Start and why it hasn't increased the poverty line. Okay, so we'll just go um, for a song while I contact our next client. So I think um, 
We might have a song from the band Flap. Tomorrow is a fat man. How are you? Good, how are you? Oh, look, um, thank you very much for coming on to our program, Unemployed Workers Fight Back. Um, we're very keen to talk to you uh, about the failure of the LNP to provide evidence of the need for the third tranche of tax cuts, as well as the so-called economic reforms demanded by Australian business lobby groups, which meet the needs of wealthier Australians. First of all, perhaps we should start with this third tranche and some questions there. Your organisation, uh, the Australia Institute, has given a number of reasons why the federal government has failed to make the case. Um, for example, um, giving away such a tax cut means billions of dollars less for schools, hospitals and services. Um, also, tax revenue is what pays for community services and infrastructure. So can you just address a couple of those and we'll go through a few of them. Sure, sure. So, I mean, the, the tax cuts that we're talking about um, are a little different. In fact, that, um, this year's and last year's tax cuts um, are the first time the gov- any government has ever done this. And basically, they're set out in three stages, and they're actually set over a seven-year time period. And previously, whenever the government wanted to do tax reform, or tax cuts, I should say, there's not, t- cutting taxes doesn't mean reform, but yeah. at any time they wanted to do tax cuts, they would do it just over four years, which was what the budget calls the forward estimates. And basically, they would provide a lot of detail. By making it over seven years, they don't have to provide that detail for the last three years. They only have to provide it for the first four years because that's, that's the rules in the budget. And surprise, surprise, the, the big part of the tax cut, the tax cut that mostly goes to um, high-income earners, is actually in that fifth, sixth and seventh year. Um, and, and, and that's the part that they don't really have to explain. So the government has given very little detail on exactly what this will cost the budget. They've given a 10-year figure of what the overall cost will be, and so if you combine 2018 and 2019 tax cuts, all up, that's $300 billion over 10 years. But they haven't given any real detail. And, and for a policy that's going to cost the budget $300 billion, giving very little detail... There was no inquiry into the tax cuts. I don't think there's any, been anything that um, any government has ever done that costs that much money where there has been so little scrutiny and so little um, um, 
uh, reports or, or uh, the Parliament has had so little time to look into them. So it's, it's quite a, an extraordinary thing that happened. Well, Matt, also, um, the ALP, despite its progressive social policy agenda before the federal election, it just permitted them through, as did yeah, the crossbenchers. I mean, uh, Where was the fight? Well, yeah, that was, that was quite surprising. I mean, the, 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 uh, the Labor Party went to the last election saying that uh, particularly the tax cutters in three stages, that stage two and three, uh, that they were going to fight against. After the election, they said that, um, that, that stage two... They, were, they, they wanted to bring forward, they liked it now, and that stage three, which was the biggest part of the tax cut that went to the top end, um, that they were going to fight. But then when it became obvious that, that it was probably going to get through, they sort of rolled over and allowed it to go through. And, I mean, that, that's, that's really sad because, again, there was very little scrutiny of this tax cut. This tax cut is a, is a fiscal time bomb for future. Like in, in five years' um, time when it comes in, um, it's going to cost the budget enormous amounts of money. And if, if, if the, the government of the time wants to maintain a surplus and both part, sides of parliament, uh, so both, both parties have said they want to do that, then they're going to have to start cutting somewhere else. And unfortunately, the things that usually gets cut is not the top end, but services that, that ordinary Australians rely on. Also, um, it's um, obvious that it's pushed them through as part of its neoliberal agenda, even though it only won one seat seems to echo Tony Abbott's austerity programs back in 2014, where the idea of having a surplus seemed to be so important. But it isn't really in the current climate, is it? It's, it's much better to stimulate the, um, the current economy as much as possible. Yeah, it is one of these weird things where politicians have taken, sort of half taken over a, an economic idea and then kind of converted it into something else. Um, a surplus or a deficit, uh, is just a means for manipulating the macroeconomy. So, firstly, most people don't actually know what a surplus is. A surplus is when the government takes in taxation from everybody more than it gives back in services. So it's taking from the private sector, from all of us, more in tax than it's handing back in services. And what that does to the economy is it shrinks it. Because the government's a net drain on the economy, it's pulling money out, then it, it shrinks the economy. When it runs a deficit, it's giving more money to the private sector than it's taking back in tax. And so that expands the economy. It's adding money into the economy. Now, whether you run a deficit or a surplus should entirely depend on whether or not the economy is booming or tanking. If the economy is doing badly and needs stimulus, then a surplus is a silly idea and you should probably run a deficit. Vice versa, if the economy was booming and we were worried about inflation and unemployment was really super low and, you know, um, the, basically we were facing bottlenecks in the economy, then that's the time to run a surplus and try and bring back that high growth rate to a more sustainable level. But basically, the budget outcome, that surplus or deficit, is really just a tool to manipulate the economy. It's not an objective. We shouldn't be aiming for a surplus. We should be saying, well, do we need to stimulate the economy or do we need to contract it? So you've got to look at the motives behind it and um, it makes me very suspicious. I mean, you're saying here that, well, the tax cuts are a big win for the wealthy. The top percent of income earners get over half the benefit, ultimately, while the bottom 20% get only 12% of it. Um, then also... you. Men get twice the benefit of the tax cut compared to women. It's not just low-income earners who lose out. And um, the system is designed to help everyone get a fair go, but 
This isn't the same under the current government. The tax cuts would do the exact opposite. They put more money in the pockets of the already wealthy while low-income earners have to pick up the slack. Yeah, and that's exactly right. And, and just today, in fact, um, the ABS put out um, a publication they put out every two years that looks closely at uh, what is happening to people's income and also what is happening to people's wealth. And they found that wealth inequality is continuing to rise. But not only that, what they found was is that those at the top, the top 20% of wealth holders, have seen their wealth increase by more than 10%. Whereas those at the very bottom, 40%, so not, not the bottom 20%, but the bottom 40%, um, have actually seen their wealth go down. Now, that's not that the, the people at the bottom's wealth is growing more slowly than the people at the top, but their wealth is actually going backwards. The assets they own are, are, are smaller than they were two years ago. So what we're seeing is is a government policy um, and flat wages are really beginning to bite those who need uh, who are doing it toughest, who, who need the most help, um, and, and and we have a government whose policy is is designed to make that worse, not better. Okay, they've also adopted. Um the so-called trickle-down theory from the US, and it's been shown not to work in terms of stimulating economic growth. And the fact that they're peddling it, um, it, it just seems to be that they're taking us for fools. Um, ScoMo talks about the quiet Australians, the compliant Australians, who he's happy that they support him. Um, but it's, it seems like it's denying the intelligence of Australians who, who know about the trickle-down theory. They know that it doesn't work. Yeah, look, I mean, economics debunked the trickle-down trickle down economic theory a long time ago. Um, amongst economic circles, it's completely discredited. But in political circles, it still hangs on. And in fact, what we've discovered in more recent years, uh, in the, the World Bank, the IMF, um, a number of um, Nobel Prize winning economists have pointed out that um, higher inequality, that is, societies where um, more of the wealth and the income goes to the top end actually grow more slowly. So it's the opposite of the trickle-down effect um, in that um, people, um, societies that try to give more to the wealthy end up growing slower. That is, the pie grows slower. We've, we've often been told, sure, you know, we understand that inequality is bad, but if we, uh, if we give more money to the top end, then the entire economy will grow and everybody will be better off. Well, what we've found more recently is, is that's completely wrong, and the opposite is true, that more equal societies grow faster than less equal societies. Now, your colleague Richard Dennis from the Institute wrote recently that today in Australia, the business lobby groups, not economists or voters, get to tell us what our economic priorities should be. And he cited examples where the economic case for tax reforms, such as the introduction of carbon taxes, resource super profit taxes and wealth taxes, has been made but not acted upon. For example, we subsidise carbon pollution instead of taxing it. Yeah, exactly right. So there are all sorts of economic reforms, genuine reforms, yeah. as opposed to just calling something that, that we want in our own self-interest reform, yeah. but actually things that will make the economy better, more efficient, grow faster and distribute for, for, um, fairly. These reforms will actually make the economy better that, that we don't do and we don't talk about um, because powerful people don't want those to happen. Things like, as you said, taxing carbon, uh, um, resource rent tax, taxing super profits. There's a whole range of um, reforms that we could do that would make us all better off, but would make certain um, special interests that are making a lot of money at the moment from us not doing it, um, 
and those interests basically say, well, no, we, we don't want that, and, and they try and make the case that, that instead of doing these reforms, what we need to do is cut um, tax for big business and we need to cut tax for high-income earners, neither of which, by the way, will make society better at all. That's that's right, and, and Richard Dennis argues... Um that making childcare more affordable for low- and middle-income working families would boost the number of women in the labour force, providing cheap and fast public transport to connect affordable housing to centres of job creation would boost the economy. Many, many good suggestions, reducing congestion, um, and also even the small business lobby now conceding penalty rate cuts didn't create a single job. So this is a bit sus, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. So the LNP supported by the business lobby groups isn't listening to these smart economic and social policies. Why not? Well, it's simple. Um, you know, uh, uh, politics works like this. Um, you support your base and, and the people who support you um, and, and you try and hurt those who... Who, who are against you. And, and as far as the LNP is concerned, unions are, are the enemy, and so we need to clamp down on those. Um, and the good guys are anybody in business, so we need to give lots of stuff to those. And, and economic arguments are kind of secondary to that. Um, we start with the assumption that business needs to be supported by being given more money and that unions and um, workers need to be clamped down on. Um, and... And, and the, the, you know, we then make up economic arguments after to justify those things. Certainly but, but not it, transparent either. Not at all. And, and, and because we've swung so far one way, because we've stripped away workers' rights over the last 20 or 30 years, because we've always talked about clamping down on unions and we've worried about wages breakouts, we've actually succeeded in what, what we've been trying to do for the last 20 years. We've made it impossible for people to get pay rises. We've got flat wages. This didn't just accidentally happen. This has been the policy of um, successive governments over the last 20 or 30 years, and we have succeeded. Unfortunately, we've succeeded, and we've discovered that, that what we've created is a, is, a, is a slow, sluggish economy where people are struggling to uh, make ends meet. I'm speaking to senior economist uh, Matt Grudnoff with the Australian Institute. And there's just one last point I wanted to ask you about, Matt. Um, mm -hmm. The recent Four Corners program on the management of the Murray-Darling Basin revealed that Australian taxpayers have given tens of millions of dollars to major agribusiness to expand cotton and nut cropping in the Murray-Darling Basin under the guise of an environmental scheme aimed at water recovery. But big business is always winning in the Murray-Darling at the expense of smaller farmers, community and the environment. So is the LNP selling out to foreign investors and the big end of town, as the Bill Shorten ALP opposition argued? Well, the Murray-Darling um, Basin plan is, is, is a disaster. Um, and, and the reason it's a disaster is because um, special interests have completely latched onto it. Uh, the National Party has been very, very happy for this to happen. Um, and, and what we see now is that um, instead of trying to save the money being um, used to try and make the river sustainable, that is to make sure that the river is there for generations to come, that there's enough for the farmers and there's enough for the environment, we've instead just basically given money to large agribusinesses, not, not household farms, not, not you know, um, small um, farmers, but large corporations that basically have shareholders, many of which are overseas, um, these large, basically given them grants to use more water. So, so they've basically put in place infrastructure, expanded their, their irrigated area and, and, to use, and, and use more water. And, and 
In order to do that, what we've had is a complete lack of transparency. Uh, there is, is almost no measurement of, of any kind um, of, of how much water is being used. Uh, the Australia Institute has, through FOIs, tried to even just get a list of all the projects that the, the federal government is funding, and, and we can't even do that. Um, what there needs to be is a whole heap of scrutiny put on this. There needs to be a royal commission so that we can get to the bottom of this, that the Auditor-General needs to have a look at these programs so that we can discover exactly what are these um, um, hundreds of millions of dollars of taxpayer dollars, what are they going to do, what are they doing, and is this in the interest, the long-term interest of not only the environment but also small farmers and, and the river system itself. Now, you've called for... The Australia Institute has called for a Royal Commission into the management of the Murray-Darling Basin. You've, um, it's online, um, and you've already got nearly 10,000 signatures, probably more by now. Yes. Um, so how do people get onto that if they would like to sign? They can go to our website, which is um, www.tai, stands for the Australia Institute, tai.org.au, and on the front page will be a link to our petition, um, and if they want to, to sign that, that would be fantastic because we really do need more scrutiny of this. There's, there's been a whole lot of stuff going on that we need to get to the bottom of and we need to have confidence that, that, that the Murray-Darling River is going to be there for generations to come and we are supporting local farmers and not just large agribusinesses. All right. Well, Matt Grudenoff from the um, Australia Institute. Is that the way I say it? Grudenoff? Yes, yes that's right. Yeah. yeah. It was lovely talking to you. Thank you very much. Thank and, you for um, having me. Yeah, thanks very much. You've been with Unemployed Workers Fight Back, and I'm Valerie Farfalla. And um, thanks for being on our program. Thank you.
tomorrow's in the future, and the future gives great pain. She's always quite obliging, she's got a lot of charms, and is always quite delighted when he falls into her arms. Tomorrow's in the future, and the future's great in bed. So don't you worry about tomorrow, cause tomorrow always comes. Don't you worry about tomorrow, cause tomorrow always comes. Here's a trundle nana, turn a nana, spin a nana, grinning though you might take that night. The day you will be winning, and don't, 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 don't you worry about tomorrow. Don't you just love that? Tomorrow is a fat man from Flap. Look, I'm going to go straight to um, my third guest, my uh, TAFE teacher, Lane. And we're going to be talking about tertiary teachers and students in the vocational sector and what's coming up. Lane, the recent influx of students responding to the Victorian government's offer of free TAFE courses, apparently a lot of the students had to be knocked back because there just weren't enough teachers available. And it's all a bit of a mess at the moment. Yes, it is, Valerie. There's... Over the years, there's been a huge amount of casualisation in the workforce of the TAFE system, and this has meant that TAFE is not really considered an attractive career. It's low wage, it's insecure, and you need a lot of qualifications to work in the TAFE system. So currently, there's not necessarily people available to take up positions, and people aren't thinking of this as um, a, a good option for them in their own personal um, employment options. What I understand is that um, TAFE teachers who are casual still end up doing a, a huge amount of extra work, marking and all sorts of overtime without getting paid for it. Is that right? Oh, yes, definitely. The TAFE system's been squeezed. There were ta- cuts to the TAFE system uh, at the same time as there was a huge amount of competition from dodgy RTOs. So it's meant that the TAFE system's been under a lot of pressure there were redundancies because enrolments fell in the period of competition from uh, private providers who undercut the TAFEs but provided really poor quality training. So the whole whole system is really in a phase of renewal. Uh, the problem is that while teachers remain highly sessionalised, it's going to be hard to rebuild that workforce. It certainly would. There'd be a huge lack of trust, not only among teachers but also um The AUWU, of course, has many people on its books who are well-educated but don't have a job and are receiving new start and have been sent off to these um, sort of Mickey Mouse courses, as they call them, um, in the private sector, which seem to be linked in with some of the job agencies. It's given the whole TAFE sector a bad name, unfortunately, especially public, public TAFEs, which had a very good reputation, and I understood I understand those public tapes are now under a lot of pressure to increase red tape 
to cover themselves. Well, it, by some sort of bizarre twist of fate, the TAFEs that run reputable TAFEs run reputable courses. They're there to provide education to students. They're not there for private profit. But they are subject to so much auditing and the auditing has really come out of that period of privatisation, of of, um, not privatisation so much as um, competition and provision by private providers. A lot of those private providers were unregulated for a long period of time. They provided really poor quality training. So people have found themselves with qualifications that employers recognise as being really poor quality. So they're stranded with a, a qualification that won't get them into the workforce. And in today's workforce, it's based on qualifications and certification. You've got to provide evidence that you're trained and job ready. Now, the TAFE system can do that really well. I mean, the TAFE system is, is now and, and was always a fantastic provider of vocational training but it's been placed under stress because of previous government policies in private profit in education. Right. And and as far as the students go, there's been a couple of articles in the paper recently talking about the financial stresses on tertiary students. For example, hex debts, um, food and rent insecurity, ability to get a part-time job and still comply with strict class attendance and the forms filling, and pressure from the job agencies to attend or face breaches. They've also got a very low rate of youth allowance. Now, no wonder people are getting so stressed out and anxious with mental health problems. It's far too much for them to cope with. These are all interrelated problems. Students are getting low um, income from either youth allowance or if they're studying at TAFE using Newstart for their financial support, combined with casualisation of the TAFEs, um, they have a a serious impact on students. For example, students are struggling to provide, find housing and pay for all their expenses, their utilities, food, transport, just to get to TAFE. When they get to TAFE, they've got less access to teachers because teachers are casualised. Teachers are drowning in paperwork because of this um, problem I mentioned earlier that the, there's a lot of uh, auditing requirements to that have come to TAFE really not because TAFE was rorting the system but because private providers rorted the system. So now we're in the TAFE system, we're constantly doing um, verification, proving that we're doing our job correctly and this impacts on students, it impacts on the quality of the courses. Teachers are made to feel responsible for student retention rates yet students are Courses have been made shorter. Students have got to do a lot of work unsupported. There's more online work. There's more pressure to do work at home in their own time. Meantime, students are trying to get part-time work to top up their income to enable them to go to stress. So there's a huge amount of personal stress, financial stress. This has a big impact on students, and one of the consequences is that the numbers of students who drop out from their courses halfway through... has increased in recent years. So students are losing time. They're having to go back and start again. They feel disillusioned. They feel disempowered. There's a loss of community on campus. There's isolation. There's huge consequences from this whole, you know, coming in from many directions. In addition, um, 
I've got other friends who are um, with PhDs and, and teachers at uni and lecturers who are um, struggling with this sort of slavery, this mm. sort of 24-7 work. You don't just end the day. You've got to go home and do all the marking and perhaps you've been given a new course, thrown a new course that you've got to adapt and change um, without being paid for it. Oh, it's so true. Um all teachers in the TAFE system are working really hard. So the permanent teachers are working really hard because there's fewer permanent teachers and they've got a lot of extra demands placed on them to pick up maybe, you know, 20 30%, perhaps even more, 50% less teachers who are permanent doing a lot of the jobs of uh, recruiting students, enrolling, um, follow-up of students, uh, pre-training assessments. There's a huge amount of work just getting students into courses. Then when they're in courses, a lot of the courses are delivered by casual teachers. So casual teachers are placed in a terrible position. They relatively re- re- receive less pay than their colleagues side by side. They're in the same staff room, but there's two rates of pay going on. One One group's got long service leave, sick leave, uh, holiday pay. Uh, The other group's got none of that. They can be sacked at any moment. So casual teachers are put on an obligation to do work as a form of goodwill. They need to keep their manager happy. Now, the managers are, are again, under this same pressure. Maybe they're sincere, but they're putting pressure on, on casuals to do unpaid work. So there's... There's at the end of the day, there's there's always work to do, and you know teaching in class has high demands. It's a it's a demanding job, but when you come out of class, there's still preparation. There's correction. It's preparation every day. It's relentless. Then there's correction. Then there's formal assessment at the end of the class, and then there's quality assurance documentation to complete as well. Um, it seems to show um, a lack of respect from the government for education. It's an undermining of the respect for teachers. We've seen that through the primary and secondary school sector as well, but also in the TAFE and tertiary sector. Um, we've, we've heard about international students and, and um, teachers being told, oh, just get them through, just get them through. It's just really, it just indicates some sort of corruption within the system. Yes, it's interesting because we really, uh, there's a, a tendency to, you know, for employers, they're crying out for well-trained, work-ready people. They want, they want students, uh, they want employees who are ready to start on the job. They don't want to put the input into training that they might have done in the past, perhaps with the apprenticeship system or through taking a person on and building their capacity at work. They expect the TAFE system to provide them a student, that, uh, an employee that can perform from day one. On the other hand, the government's cut the funding um, repeatedly over the years. Um, teachers are casualised. The quality assurance requirements are so great. It's, it really does feel like teachers are treated in an, as ex, an expendable unit in the whole machine. And the young people, the young students also. Um, it uh, seems like there's a, a neoliberal... Um, undercurrent of competition competition so now there's competition between teachers for jobs and there's competition between students to get a place to get a free place at a TAFE 
under the state system. Hopefully that will all work out for the better, but it seems to have been poorly prepared. Yes, that's true. The decision to offer free TAFE is great and most teachers in the TAFE system see it as a vote of confidence in TAFE and it's great to see the state government, Labor government, you know, giving this funding to students to enable them to go to TAFE because the costs, the fees are high and um, coming up, students need to come up with the the fees uh, um, to be able to enrol. So this is a great opportunity for students, but the planning needs to be there and the working conditions need to be provided to make people feel that TAFE is a, a, a suitable career pathway. That's right. Oh, well... It's um, certainly a survival of the fittest mentality in this society today. And I understand um, the LNP government isn't so concerned about the society. Remember Margaret Thatcher? Mm. She said, what do you need a society for? Yes, there is no society. You need an economy. But as we've heard from Matt, um, social policies and things that certainly fit in with what makes a good economy. You can't sort of just privatise and outsource everything and not provide any services. That's not the way it works. And the, the experience of going to TAFE should be something about building community. It should be an experience, not just an educational experience. It should be an opportunity to be part of a community, to meet people, to engage in, in activities on campus. Uh, students need to be in a position to really participate in their course and get the most out of it, not scrabbling to survive. And there's got to be... Not to dumbing down. I mean, that's a worry, isn't it? Are we going to have an educated Australian workforce or are they going to be dumbed down to the point where the government can then say, oh, they don't really want to do education, so we'll bring in some cheaper people? This is a real danger. The Australian TAFE system and our training training system was once considered one of the best in the world. And our, our workers were really highly regarded. And I think that's still the case, but it comes at a great cost because this cost is from teachers who are committed to passing on their skills. People that come into TAFE with industry experience and a commitment to really passing on their knowledge and wanting to do the right thing by students. So it, to maintain those standards is coming at a cost to, at a cost to teachers Teachers are under a terrible amount of stress and they're exhausted in many cases by the end of the end of the term. You yes. Know. It's been terrific talking to you. And I'm, um, Lane, you can stay with us and, and contribute to the rest of the program. I just want to let listeners know that um, 3CR is still looking for donations for its Radiothon and your donation is tax deductible. So please help um, keeping promoting and providing... Su- some funds for our radiothon, you can always ring us, 94198377, and make a donation because we really need the funds to keep going. So um, we'll just go with another song, I think. Um, Here, One Dub Nation.
And that was One Dub Nation from Vanya O. So uh, you're with Valerie Fafala and unemployed workers fight back. And um, what I wanted to talk to you about was on the 4th of July 2019, both the ALP and the Coalition voted down a motion to increase New Start, a payment that is $243 per week below the poverty line. Elaine, how does that compare with uh, SCOMO's? Daily rate or weekly rate? Well, ScoMo earns over 1500 per day. I can't remember the number exactly. Against $40 a day. That's $40 a day. Say and that again, will you? 1500 plus per day. My goodness, this is a national disgrace. That's why tonight at 7pm, 
we are going to be handing out leaflets outside St Paul's Cathedral about this issue and collecting signatures and also perhaps Flinders Street Station. So come down and join us. Look for our banner and the volunteers in uh, with our special, uh, yell, you know, our, our signs and join our protest for a better deal in Newstart, raising it to the poverty line. Okay, Jim Chalmers, a shadow treasurer, told people there's no... St- no new start push from the ALP. He dismissed suggestions that Labor should follow through on its pre-election pledge to conduct a review into New Start. He said he ruled out reviewing New Start in opposition, saying those hoping for a boost to the payment had Labor won the election will now have to convince the government. <laughs> it is really pathetic. So as Labor prepares to reshape its policy agenda following its 18th May electoral defeat, Chalmers used his first speech after being promoted to the senior portfolio to outline the opposition's economic priorities. Dismissing suggestions that Labor should follow through to conduct the review into Newstart, calling it an unfortunate consequence of the coalition's victory. That review won't happen, he said. There are a lot of things we were proposing which had the potential to make a real difference to people's lives. When you think about what happened on election night, one of those things that does get you down is that we were not able to implement some of those policies and plans that we think would have made a real difference, particularly to vulnerable people in Australia. We have to accept the reality that we are three years from another election. And I don't think a review at the start of that from opposition would necessarily shift the needle on New Start. I think that is pathetic. I am so disappointed in the Labor Party. First of all, before the election, they they were too gutless and weak to actually say to commit to increasing New Start. They put out the idea, they suggested that they were going to increase New Start. They led us to believe that they were going to do that. And then once they lost the election, they've just backtracked completely. What we need from the Labor Party is leadership on this. They need to put to the government that New Start needs to be increased. It's, it's a disgrace that the Labor Party have abandoned the unemployed in this way. And to think that they voted against a, a motion in the Senate to increase New Start in the first sitting of Parliament. Frankly, I was rocked by it, and I have felt so so upset and so distressed by it that um, this is why I've initiated with the uh, Australian Unemployed Workers Union to take up uh, this. To set up this Friday night protest outside Flinders Street Station or across the road at St Paul's, it's a work in progress. Well, well is, done, Lane. I mean, is, it was such a great idea. Yeah, this is a, a first week. Uh, we've we've got some signs. I've got a nice big sign saying how much exactly ScoMo earns every day. Earns might be another might be the wrong word. Actually, he gets every day, and how much an unemployed worker earns staying alive. The Saturday paper had a really good um, editorial called Destroying Australia Mm. and it said, so it passes the greatest assault on the safety net from which Australian life is built. Scott Morrison's tax cuts are through and the revenue base that provides for health and education and social welfare is shredded. The legacy of the 46th Parliament is there in its very first week. On analysis by the Grattan Institute, to pay for these cuts at least $40 billion a year, will need to be trimmed from government spending by 2030. The Coalition argues it will not cut services. It says job growth will reduce spending on welfare. 
A surplus will mean less interest paid on debt. We don't like to call it welfare. We like to call it social security entitlement. It's not welfare. And so the editorial goes on and it says, these assumptions are heroic and unsustainable. They show an extraordinary indifference to reality, especially indifferent to need. People will be worse off under these cuts. They'll face greater hardship, have less access to health and to quality education. And the people worse affected didn't vote for Scott Morrison. Half the country didn't. The damage Mm. done is near irreversible. Easier to cut taxes than to raise them. It's a triumph of greed and political cowardice. And the Labour Party waved it through. Yes. And one of the things that we heard before the election was the Liberal Party boasting that people on benefits has the lowest is is the lowest number in recent years and that is because they have a direct strategy to drive people off um, Centrelink payments and I see that every day in the classroom I'm an English as a second language teacher and the students I teach are trying to build their language skills to get into into a vocational course to make a new life in Australia and every day they are placed, they are under the pump. First of all, you've got to have a smartphone. You've actually got to have a phone, enough money for, to pay for a phone because students are forced to report every day that they have participated. If you, don't have, if, if you, can't, if you haven't got enough credit to ring up, you will be breached. If you haven't got access to the internet, you will be breached. The students are placed uh, continually disempowered by their job networks. It's a shameful situation. Instead of being supported in their efforts to gain language, to to learn about Australian culture, to learn about the to opportunities for education and vocational training to make their way in Australia, they're actually being, uh, I think, quite deliberately an attempt to drive them off benefits of any type and to form some sort of underclass that is invisible. It's outrageous, isn't it? You know, in his first major speech as Prime Minister, Morrison said he didn't believe people should be taxed more to improve the lives of others. This is a religious man, of course. He said people had to work for it. They had to have a go. I think that's what fairness means in this country. He said it's not about everybody getting the same thing. If you put in, you get to take out, and you get to keep more of what you earn. And the editorial goes on from the Saturday paper. This is a fundamental misunderstanding of the purpose of taxation. You don't pay tax in exchange for services. You pay tax for a society. Under Morrison, you pay less tax and you have less society. The obliterating self-interest of this week will be felt for generations. Morrison's victory is a huge, huge loss. And I just want to read, listeners, uh, a song that I wrote, um, but I won't sing it. This is a poem and it's called... Oh, how proud we should be. Keating called us a banana republic. Pauline Hanson caught us with our pants down. She revealed a racist side that Australians love to hide. ScoMo turned the shameful into bogan pride. You must have a go to get a go, the ad man told the throng. There'll be no increase in new start, though the queues are getting long. I support the quiet Australians who will do as they are told. Give them tax cuts and cash refunds and ignore the young and bold. How proud we should be, the major parties now agree. It's our land and we decide who comes to share it. Oh, how proud we should be, asylum seekers die at sea or at Manus or Nauru. They cannot bear it. And this is from ScoMo. 
Human rights in a free press, climate change and poverty stress, robo-debt, a weak economy won't stop us. Because the Libs have got a mandate to maintain the status quo. No more policies or welfare in our office. How good's Aussie? I to your country folk to stop them feeling sad. And I say the same to corporates when the global market's bad. I ignore the latte sippers when they say we're second rate. And I wave at Chinese warships when they steal milk by the crate. How proud we should be. The major parties now agree it's our land. We have no say who comes to buy it. Just a quarry after all. Foreign business has the call with a trans-Pacific goal to colonise it. Have a go to get a go. How good's that? Well said, Valerie. (laughs) (laughs) It's very disappointing to see... The, the type that the, the ideas of an egalitarian Australian undermined at every turn, and we see this with Scott Morrison with the, with the way he he his his aggressive attacks on fundamental principles of community. Yeah, it's so important, and that's why you listeners, we want you to join the Unemployed Workers Union, where we are a community. Mm. We're all fighting. Um, to help people who are facing these difficulties with the job agencies. We're fighting for an increase to New Start. And we've got thousands of volunteers working for this group. Um, We'd love you to join us too and find out about our organisation. We've got a website, Unemployed Workers Fight Back. We also have produced um, guides, uh, written guides, consumer guides, to help you deal and negotiate with the job industry and the job agencies um, and to help with Centrelink problems. So that's very important. If you're listening, this is what our um, this particular program is all about. Mm. It's fantastic to see what the Unemployed Workers Union are doing to empower people to, to speak up and uh, um, have their rights represented properly with the job agencies. The job agencies, I see the job agencies lording it over my students all the time. The students are called upon to go to interviews. They miss classes. They're they're just subject to their demands and there's way too much power given to them. We really need to, to work together on this to see, first of all, to very very most basic thing to get an increase to work to new start so that people can survive and not have the type of financial stress that they are but secondly to get these job services under control their impact on people's lives would be really better if we could have a new version of the old ces so yeah. that it's in public hands because every time you privatize these things as we know with some of the nursing homes for profit that they're always cost-cutting and really the services um, get snapped out, the services to people who need them. Yeah, that's right. There shouldn't be a, a relationship between getting a job and somebody else making a profit.